Acts chapter 27, verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. So we see the word we used here that indicates that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, was traveling with Paul on his journey to Rome. And Luke was also a physician, so getting on board, purchasing the ticket, probably wouldn't be a big issue if he told them that, hey, I'm a doctor. They probably wouldn't have an issue with that. And we're also introduced to another Roman centurion named Julius, and he's in charge of the prisoners on the ship until they reach their destination. Verse 2, and embarking in a ship of Adramatium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put into sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. So Paul and Luke are already on board, ready to sail, and now they're accompanied by Aristarchus, a guy from Thessalonica. And he was with Paul when all the drama unfolded at Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, verse 29. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. So we've seen him before, and now he's on board with him. And he was also imprisoned with Paul, as noted in Colossians 4.10. It says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. So he was not a stranger to Paul. He's a dedicated brother that went through a lot of chaos alongside Paul. And now they're off on another journey as they put out to sea. Verse 3, the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. So the ship lands at Sidon, still in the area of Israel, and the centurion allows Paul to go see friends. And remembering that Paul was an uncondemned Roman, he still maintained his rights to be treated fair, unlike other prisoners that were likely on board who were already condemned, and they're traveling to their destination to die. Paul was still an uncondemned Roman. So he has friends in Sidon as well as many other cities and he goes to visit them. Verse 4, and putting out to sea from there we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. Verse 5, and when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. Now if you have a map of Paul's journeys, you can trace this out and see all of these cities. They're identified on many of Paul's missionary journey maps. Verse 6, There a centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. So Paul and his companions are now on a different ship headed to Italy. And this is going to be a big ship. It's not just a little boat, a little fishing boat like we think of. It's a big ship. Verse 7, we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off of Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off of Salmone. Verse 8, coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Verse 9, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, verse 10, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of cargo and of the ship, but also of lives. Paul was familiar with sailing, and he was also familiar with being shipwrecked, as he says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-five, where he's kind of laying out what kind of sufferings he's endured. He says, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a day and a night I was adrift at sea. So Paul's familiar with this, and he probably is not too happy that they're pushing the envelope on the weather. And although he was not a seasoned sailor, 
He was a man of God and likely sensed this is not going to be an easy trip. And he also knew how God could change up things in the middle of a plan because he wanted Paul to minister to some person in an unexpected place. And that's what's going to happen. Verse 11, but the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. So the pilot was the sailor and the owner of the ship was the businessman. Time is money and sometimes risks are necessary to keep the profits up. So they pushed the envelope to take the risk. Verse 12. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. These guys are really pushing the envelope because these are sailors. They knew what they were doing, and they're trying somehow to reach a harbor. Let's get moving. We can spend the winter in Phoenix. That'd be suitable for the ship. So the total distance from Israel to Rome was approximately 1,500 miles by ship. And remember, they had only sails and the weather's bad. So this is not going to be a overnight trip. Verse 13, now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. So they're up and moving. Hey, it looks good. Let's go. Verse 14, but soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. Now, this is a notorious storm that the sailors would be really familiar with. It was a sudden wind that had a really bad reputation, and now it had struck them. They knew about the tendencies of this wind to kick up, and now they're stuck in it. Verse 15, And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. So now they're at the mercy of this wind in this storm. And again, this is a big ship. Verse 16, running under the lee of a small island called Kata, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. Verse 17, after hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. So All hands on deck. They're trying to make the ship safe, getting everything wrapped up, bracing for this violent storm that's going to last for a while. Verse 18. Since they were violently storm-tossed, they begin the next day to jettison the cargo. And now you know things are serious when they start chucking cargo overboard, and things aren't getting any better, but they're actually getting worse. Verse 19. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And so now they're dumping the ship's equipment. You can see that they're desperate. Verse 20, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. So Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus are on this ship with a bunch of other people. And now all hope for survival is lost because they've been badly battered by this storm for several days, no food, and things aren't getting better. Verse 21, Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. So I wonder if Paul was thinking to himself, Lord, do you want me to witness to these guys? It's a great time to share Jesus when you know you're going to die. So he steps up to the plate and he commands their attention and he tells them, Hey, I was right. So I've got a little bit of credibility here. Verse 22, Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Verse 23, For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. 
verse 24, and he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So Paul begins to encourage them, saying, hey, the God that I worship, that I belong to, he sent his angel to remind me that God told me I'm going to Rome, and I'm going to Rome. This little detour is not going to affect the fact that I'm going to be at Rome at some point. He knew it. He trusted the Lord, and he understood when he was told he was going to Rome, that meant he was going to Rome. And I've had a few experiences in my life like this where God told me something, and it didn't look possible. And the situations became more and more intense, like the thing's not going to happen, and he just kept reminding me, trust me, I've got this. And against the odds, in my mind, God brought me through exactly like he said he would. I felt bad because I didn't trust him, but you know, the situation's crazy. It's like, this can't happen. This is not a natural progression. This has to be a supernatural thing, and it was. So those lessons, they taught me that when God says something, I need to understand it's going to happen. And this has given me so much comfort now when I hear the voice of the Lord and he wants me to do something that looks crazy. I know now it's going to happen, so I don't worry about it. I can simply rest and wait for the Lord to do it. And that gives me peace. It allows me to relax in the middle of things. And I'm like, God's got this. It's not my fight. He's the one that said this is going to happen. I just have to believe and obey. And I think Paul knew he was not going to perish before the angel stood before him. And even if he didn't, even if he thought, man, I think I'm going to die here, he writes, to live as Christ and to die as gain. So really, what does he have to lose? It's a win either way. If he dies, he goes to be with the Lord. If he lives, then he lives and he goes on to Rome. What a great way to live your life. It's like, whatever. If I die, God's going to take me right into his presence. You know, my life is in his hands. If he chooses death for me, then hey, I go to be with him and I'm good with that. I think that's where we all should be. Verse 25, so take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, no doubt. I do not doubt what God's going to do. Verse 26, but we must run aground on some island. And this had to be comforting to those on the ship when all hope was gone. Any glimmer of hope is welcome. And with Paul, there was no glimmer. This was a preacher, probably very calmly telling them, saying, don't worry, we'll be safe. And very likely as he's speaking, they're watching him. And this guy doesn't look at all nervous as everybody else is looking at each other, freaking out. Verse 27, when the 14th night had come, so there are two weeks in this storm, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they're two weeks at sea in this storm, and finally they're sensing land. Verse 28, so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. So it's getting shallow. Verse 29, and fearing that they might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. So they drop four anchors and they pray for you know the day to hurry up and get here. You know, and there are people who say they have found these anchors, but to my knowledge, none have been confirmed. And that's one of the things that I've learned when a quote-unquote Christian claims to have found something crazy like Noah's Ark or a chariot wheel in the Red Sea. It circulates around other churches and there might be some stuff online and it's like, oh, wow. But, you know, it's very disheartening when you find out that they're fake. And I don't get upset anymore when I see that stuff because it just it's a waste of time. There's no reason to get upset. It's like people are scamming everywhere and people posing as Christians are no different. And they're accountable to God for their actions. And there have been some interesting archaeological finds and legitimate finds. They'll usually be printed and confirmed. But watch out for the liars because there's a lot of them out there. So they drop these four anchors 
They're going to try to hold their position there. Verse 30. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. So the sailors are like, yeah, we're just going to kind of, you know, we're going to take care of some business here. And they're down there lowering the the lifeboat and they're trying to bail out. They probably knew how to swim and had some degree of survival skills. So it would make sense. You know, every man for himself. And then Paul steps up and ruins everything. Verse 31. Paul said to the centurion, and the soldiers. Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So these were the guys with the weapons. Paul says, yeah, you let the sailors go, you're going to die. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat or the lifeboat, and they let it go. I can imagine the look on the sailors' faces when they watched their boat disappear into the night. Yep, we'll fix this problem. No problema. And they cut the ropes and then the boat's gone. Verse 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged all of them taking food, saying, Today's the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Imagine not eating for two weeks. Not only that, but under this type of stress. No food for two weeks. You're in a terrible storm. And now guess what? We're going to go for a swim, guys. So you need some food. Verse 34. Therefore, I urge you to take some food. For it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And here again, Paul's taking that leadership role, comforting them, saying, guys, look, it's going to be okay. It's one of the things as a believer, you know, we can be that person of encouragement. We of all people should have that peace. There's an interesting story about John Wesley when he was on a ship headed to the U.S. and they were in a real bad storm. And he was coming over here to preach the gospel. And there was these believers in the boat and they were totally at peace. And he couldn't understand how they would have peace out in the middle of the ocean, knowing that they could drown. And they're like, hey, man, God's in control. And after that, that's when John Wesley said he got saved. He'd been preaching for a while, but he truly saw the peace of God in the storm with these people. And it impacted him so much that that's when he surrendered his life to Jesus. So we can be a huge witness when we're going through trials. Just keep that peace because people are watching us. That's a good witness. Verse 35. And when he said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and he began to eat. So Paul's like, look, I'm eating. I'm going to have some bread. So he finds the bread, he breaks it, gives thanks, and now he's eating it. So they're seeing him eat the bread. Verse 36. Then they were all encouraged and ate food themselves. And so now they're all on board. Verse 36. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. So again, the idea that this is a small ship is pretty much tossed out by the number of people on board. This is a big boat. Verse 38. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into sea. They tossed the final cargo overboard and now they know they're getting close. Verse 39. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they see this island, they see the beach, and it's like, look, let's head for that beach. If we can land this ship on the beach, all is good. Verse 40, so they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. So they're getting ready, and now it's straight to the beach, full speed ahead. Verse 41, but striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable and the stern was being broken up by the surf. So things were looking good up until now, and now the ship crashed into a barrier reef and was being destroyed. Verse 42. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. So the soldiers knew who the prisoners were, and Paul was one of them. And they were obviously not all prisoners, as Luke and Aristarchus were on board. But if any of the prisoners escaped... Those soldiers would pay a severe penalty up to death for their irresponsibility. So they're like, no, look, we're going to take care of this right now. 
verse 43, but the centurion wishing to save Paul kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land. So the centurion makes a command decision, taking full responsibility for all the prisoners. This was a huge risk because the ship was being broken up and if the prisoners could easily hit the beach and run, they were gone. Now they're on islands, they could probably be found, but they could go make weapons, they could do all kinds of stuff. It was a command decision by a leader. So he orders those that can swim, jump in, head to the beach, verse 44, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. So those of you that can't swim, grab a board, learn how to surf. So it was that they were all brought safely to land. And in the end, all the passengers were saved, as Paul had said. What a ride. So God told Paul, hey, you're going to be all right. Paul conveyed that. And in the end, God's word prevailed. Thank you.